0: We've always been um, a big believer in smaller funds. Um, I know everyone has a bit of a def- different definition on smaller funds. Ours is between seventy and two hundred and fifty million dollars. I would say as a sort of uh, sweet spot. And generally, we're in those funds. We're trying to be anywhere between five to ten percent of that fund. So we're never a cornerstone investor, but we do want to be probably a top five, top ten in terms of size and other LPs that. Drive towards that sort of ownership. Do it for various reasons. You know, some people might want to take part of uh, the GP. Some people might want to sort of negotiate better fees and better economics. We do it for uh, the sort of co-investment side of things and making sure that we have a close relationship with the with the funds that we back. So, you know, one of the key things that we look for when we go into a fund is how collaborative they are and how you know much they they do co-invest with their LPs.
1: James, you've been an integral part in the startup ecosystem, reviewing over 3,000 startups a year for over seven years at PwC. And today, you're investing in some of the most uh, cutting-edge uh, managers from pre-seed to Series A with a focus on emerging managers at Dara5. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. Thank you, David. Yes, yeah, uh, brilliant to be here and uh, yeah, looking forward to cracking right in. Let's start with uh, at PwC. As I mentioned, you you evaluated so many startups. What did you do at PwC, and what did you learn there?
0: Something I wanted to do very quickly in my career was
1: spend time with
0: early stage companies, people who like to take risks, who are dynamic. So I first started that through PwC's corporate accelerator. You know, working with companies on sort of a commercial front, and then a little bit later on in more of a sort of investing capacity in helping companies to do their sort of Series A, Series B financing roles. And so I guess in those sort of capacities, what I was doing was no really different to what a, a venture capital associate venture capital analyst is doing on a day-to-day basis. It's looking at market trends, seeing where the activity is highest, where, where venture funding is going, and then starting to look at companies on a sort of qualitative and quantitative level. And so that that, that assessment does change depending on what type of uh, what kind of stage company you're at. and David, I'm sure you're very well versed in this in this yourself. Um, but you know on the early stage side, we we would often look at kind of things on the qualitative side. It would be much more to do with the people involved, whether those entrepreneurs have been extra entrepreneurs themselves, whether they had got people within them in the team that really genuinely understood that problem. You know had they come from that background, had they come from that sector and experienced it kind of firsthand. And only when you were kind of, I guess, getting to sort of a Series A, Series B sort of stage funding company, would you be able to look at things on a more of a quantitative stage. So yes, you'd be looking more into the metrics, the KPIs, the backers of the business. But it is an art. It's definitely an art between that sort of qualitative and quantitative analysis. And I don't think anyone's necessarily written the
1: the perfect uh, formula on it just yet. Well, you, you might have not written the perfect one, but I'm sure you got a lot of learnings. Uh, let's, let's double click on that. What are some um, non consensus things that you learned at the early stage?
0: That's, that's a good one. So I think one of the things that I liked to get under the skin of, and it definitely took a few conversations, you know, and a while to feel comfortable in asking is why the founder is, is doing the business it is doing. Um, and the, the answer that I liked to see the most was that they had experienced this problem firsthand. You know, I think there was there's definitely been probably too many companies founded over the last three, four, five years because it was seen as a, a bit of an exciting, easy thing to do. You know, capital was readily available, people were ready to jump ship into a startup, and so I don't think too many people thought about the longer term reasons why they wanted to. Know, do that startup, and so one of the things that was—it took a bit of time to, to learn how to, to, you know, identify the people who are doing it for because they like to do it, and the people who they wanting to do it. But you want to find those people who have those obsessions, who day
1: in day out are thinking about this. They're the people that are motivated that you can trust in. You mentioned obsession. The way that I like to put it is, I look look for entrepreneurs that can't opt out of starting a company versus opt in. Too many people, especially in bull markets, you have the same thing in other industries like crypto. They come in just to make money. The reason you really need to be obsessed with the opportunity and, and with the problem is for two reasons. One is the opportunity cost. There's always going to be a new shiny object, and like a dog chasing the next car, you're going to end up chasing the next car in the next bull wave. How many of these crypto investors have now become AI investors? How many of these crypto entrepreneurs have become AI entrepreneurs? And that is not a recipe for success. The second aspect is having this obsession, having this non-financial incentive in order to solve a problem helps you get through the dark, dark times. Every entrepreneur goes through dark times, whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's a first time entrepreneur doing a pre-seed opportunity and having that extra ump or extra uh, motivation to solve a problem is really critical for the long term success of of the startup. I couldn't agree more. Um, too many times people see the
0: entry and exit point of a, of a business and just assume that there's a kind of a linear road in between those two points. And it's, it's totally not. It's, it's up and down. And even people like Elon are, are feeling that, but they're the people who, you know, don't give up and, and they're the people
1: who people aspire towards the most because they're just relentless in, in what they do. I think Elon's certainly an interesting and an extreme example. I think every startup, every great startup dies at least three times, probably at least five times before it succeeds. By definition, a great startup is one that is going in a non-consensus direction in full tilt. And anytime you're running 100 miles per hour against the grain and against the wind, you're going to have a lot of friction. So hmm. tell me a little bit about Dara 5s. Uh,
0: yeah, so I joined Dara5 about two years ago, actually. So um, the Dara5 was set up uh, about four years ago, and it came from a next generation family who wanted to invest into the venture capital and private equity worlds, but wanted to be doing it alongside other families from a similar demographic. You know, fast forward to today, the setup is very much a, a multifamily office, but very much focused on next generation families and, and individuals. And Coming together to invest into private equity and venture capital largely largely venture capital so about seventy five percent of what we do is, is is in the venture capital world uh, and that's focused very much on a split thesis between investing in funds and in companies so we look to try and invest into earlier stage funds later stage companies and try and Uh, A little sort of mission statement, which we can definitely uh, double down into, is to try and invest into the private markets with a public market level of information. What do you mean by that? So public markets, everyone has a much fairer playing field because there is financial information readily available or much more frequently available. In the private markets, it's a lot more tough to come across this information. And so it's generally in the hands of the agents, the venture capitalists who are backing these companies. And so what you can do as a fund of funds or someone who invests into these uh, funds as an LP is able to get this information. So if you're getting this information across 15, 10, maybe 15, maybe even more funds, and they've got 20, 30, maybe 50 underlying companies, all of a sudden you're getting that financial information on 500, maybe 1,000 companies, private markets. And so if your selection on a funds level is at the top tier, the uh, underlying assessment of that is that you will have top tier private market companies sitting underneath that. And so what you can get to in a period of time is having a private level uh, private level companies with a public market level of information in the best companies that exist.
1: What is information that you're getting that is providing you alpha as an LP? Oh, I love that. So
0: it's. I think one of the things to to kind of take a step back that has always been challenging is the structure of information. So you know, there's there's no kind of one set one way of doing things. There's no one way of necessarily valuing a business or assessing a business in in the private world. And so that does make it complex to uh, keep this information together in a structured form where you can analyze it in one way. But quite often, what we want to be seeing from the LP from the underlying GPs that we're investing in is a degree of information that allows us to analyze all the businesses together. So yes, that can be financial information like the revenue growth, the margins that that business is doing, obviously depending on the sector. There's KPIs that you want to be assessing to, revenue per employee, employee growth. I think the most important thing is to be proactive with it all. So you're able to effectively make a bit of a
1: thesis assessment yourself and not rely completely on the GPs. I think having an informed opinion as an LP certainly can't hurt. How have you utilized data from your general market research in order to make better decisions? That's a tough one. It's something that we are continually
0: learning about. Um, I think that the one thing that I am trying to get it to in a position is be able to automate as much as that as possible. So whether it is requesting data from GPs in a certain format, whether it is trying to create models and some sort of um, technology in-house to be able to automate the collection of uh, LP reports that you get on a quarterly and a monthly basis so that you can spend time making decisions and spend time with perhaps the founders and the GPs more. You know, We're very much in a people business at the end of the day and spend time talking to you know the individuals that are involved because I think they're the there, especially in the early stages, where you make your decisions, you don't make your decisions purely on numbers and and uh, what's what you're telling in a spreadsheet. But yes, they inform
1: you, and you know the more data we get, the more informed we can be. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a couple examples of some use cases and how you use data to to make better decisions? Okay, so today,
0: so the one place I would point towards would be um, the the way that we assess co investments. So for Forty percent ish of the dollars that we're looking to deploy um, is into the co-investment world, and so we quickly need a way of assessing um, these companies uh, when they're looking. When you're looking at sort of three, four hundred companies at a time, so we will ask for um, information on those companies that we can put into a structured format: and metrics around the revenue growth of the business, what their sort of average contracts look like, the metrics, the margins involved in those companies, the amount of employees that they have. And then we can make some sort of back of the um, cigarette packet calculations around sort of revenue per employee. These allow us to see how those are updating sort of on a quarterly by quarterly basis. Having sort of close relationships with GPs allows us to be able to get that sort of level of information. I think it would be a little bit different if we were, you know, a 250K check in a $200 million fund. Having a sort of close relationship with these GPs allows you to, Get this information in a format that you want so that you can see which companies are growing most quickly and which companies that you should be tracking ahead of time so that if co investment opportunities come up, you're ready to sort of pull the plug straight away.
1: I do want to get into your check size, but first, I have a really great co investment for you, James. Uh, It's a great entrepreneur. It's a hot company. It's amazing. It's the best portfolio company I've ever seen. How do you evaluate that? How many times a week do you hear that? It, how, many, how many times a week do
0: you hear that? <laughs> I, I, I hear that one a lot and it's definitely coming around more at the moment. I think it's a real challenging one, the co-investment world, because you've got a kind of buy-sell side conflict, right? You've, on one time, on one point, a GP really wants the, this, this, this business to do very, very well um, and has to believe in that company. But on the other side of things, if they don't sell it well enough to its co-investors, whether that's other GPs or its, it, it's LPs, that company isn't going to raise the money that it needs to, to take it to the next level. So there's a bit of a conflict, I think, of interest. And you, you definitely have to make sure that you know, you're working with partners that you're able to trust and partners that you can believe in. And that's why it's important to kind of make your own assessment of these companies as well. I think when you get, a, when you get something like that through the door, um, if I haven't been able to see it proactively, uh, then it then it is challenging to do in 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 a short space of time. I do want to be able to have made my own assessment on that company, um, and that definitely comes from some of the ways that we collect data and you know the, the often the, the, the regular touch points that we're getting with managers. So if someone random kind of called me up or um, you know messaged me on LinkedIn saying what you said just there, I'd be pretty scared, and uh, I would be the, the the bar to be assessing that
1: company would certainly be at the highest it could be. One of the one of the guests that I think had the most interesting and also the most experienced guests in this space, uh, Roland Reynolds from industry, he's been investing since 2006 and he uses a couple of really interesting strategies. One is he uses what I call a double gated process, which means in order for him to even look at investment, it has to be one of his GPs to your point. You don't take cold, uh, cold inbounds necessarily. The second aspect of that is he, he likes to pick the top 10% of his GPs. So if he has, in his case, uh, 4,000 companies, he's only picking out of 400 companies. And then he basically picks from that. That's a good way to take away the error from, from co-investing. The other aspect, and this goes back to quarterly reports and having a relationship with GPs, which we're going to go into uh, shortly is that he's talking to these GPs months and months and years, sometimes before a round is happening. If you look at some of the top companies in somebody's portfolio, for example, we have a company Maximus that is absolutely crushing it. Uh, I've been communicating that to to LPs on a quarterly basis. I think that's important. I think having that relationship is really critical. And if you're Mm -hmm. playing defense, if you're being reactive to co-invest, you're going to be almost by definition, adversely selective. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm probably one of the the younger guests
0: that you had, and so I'm I'm learning from these people all the time. It's it's great to be involved with it, and it's great to see the sort of level of guests that you're getting on the podcast here. And I couldn't agree more. I I think I don't like to to, to agree with everything on when when a, when a discussion's being made. I'll, I'll definitely try and sort of um, contradict you at some point today. But with that with that point, that that's the sort of aspiration that I want to get you know our, our operations to is that you know we've got that level of number of companies underlying and we're able to select the best ones that's that sort of public market level of information investing in private markets you know, you know it
1: sounds like they're there already which is a fantastic place to be today's episode is sponsored by badaw insurance group Badav insurance group is run by my close friend amit Badav, who insures me both personally and at the corporate level most people are not aware of the inherent conflicts in insurance where insurance agents are incentivized to send their clients to the most expensive option. Amit has always been an incredible partner to me and 10X Capital, driving down our fees considerably while providing a premium solution. I'm proud to personally endorse Amit. I ask that you consider using Badav Insurance Group for your next insurance need, whether it be DNO, cyber, or even personal car and home insurance. You could email Amit at amit at luxstr.com. That's A H M E T at lux-str.com. Thank you. I was talking to one of the top hedge fund managers in the world and he privately told me that he had been around for many decades and public markets investing had gotten much less interesting since uh, the fair disclosure rules. So as soon as everybody had to disclose the same amount of information to everybody, he basically, you know, was not able to sustain his alpha. And I think what you're alluding to is the alpha in the private markets, the information asymmetry. And lack of information dis- uh, dissemination that leads to alpha in the private markets. So, I promise to talk about check size because I think that's one of the most differentiating things that, that you do. Talk about your check size strategy and why that's a critical part of your overall uh, LP strategy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, we've always been um, a big believer in smaller funds. Um, I know everyone has a bit of a def- different definition on smaller funds. Ours is between 70 and 250 million dollars, I would say, as a sort of Uh, Sweet spot. And generally, we're in those funds. We're trying to be anywhere between five to 10% of that fund. So we're never a cornerstone investor, but we do want to be probably a top five, top 10 in terms of size. And other LPs that drive towards that sort of ownership do it for various reasons. You know, some people might want to take part of uh, the GP, some people might want to sort of negotiate better fees and better economics. We do it for uh, the sort of co-investment side of things, and making sure that we have a close relationship with the with the funds that we back. So, you know, one of the key things that we look for when we go into a fund is how collaborative collaborative they are, and how you know much they they do co-invest with their LPs. Is it something that they have done? Do they have a process in place to to do that, and how willing to share they are in in, in the kind of co-investing world? Because you know, co-investing done right is a way of unlocking. You know more of the, the the top performing returns for better economics, and so as an LP who is keen on doing co-invests, you know executed right, it can multiply your strategy um, to make it perform even better than just doing the LP
1: side of things. Let's talk about the life cycle. Let's take it really granular. Let's say you invest it in my latest fund. Congrats! It's highly oversubscribed. Congrats, James. So uh, you're you're an LP. How do you build a relationship with a GP? What's the best practice?
0: Yeah, I, I, I love that question. I haven't actually been asked it too many times before with prospective GPs. And um, maybe maybe they should have done because it would have prepared me a little bit more for for, for that answer. But I think I, I talked about this on LinkedIn a week or so ago. I, I, too many GPs only talk to you when they are at a critical moment in their fundraising journey. And so, you know, Fundraising is a long long term game, whether you're a founder or whether you're a GP, but particularly on the GP LP sides, because you know, your fund is open for a year, and you know, in two or three years time that you're going to be fundraising again. So really, those touch points should be coming at not just the times where you need people the most, but I think the people that have done particularly well in this over the last few years have been people that. Have understood what I want to get out of a GPLP relationship and ask the questions as opposed to kind of like almost dictating the answers. And so what do I want to get out of GPs? Well, one of the key things I want to be doing is learning. I want to be educated about what you're specializing in and why this sector is is so exciting. So, you know, I've been speaking to a a fair few space funds over the last couple of months because space is an area that, you know, we're we're keen on exploring in the future. And you know, this is an area that I don't have that much uh, background in. I don't, I don't have any sort of large level of information coming to me pre, prior to these, um, prior to speaking to these GPS. And so, yeah, that educational piece is important. Um, having casual conversations is amazing. Conversations without an agenda. Um, seeing people in person is, is obviously very important. If you can get those touch points. And and just understanding like if you are in the same sort of category as each other. Um, you don't have to be perfectly right for each other on day one, but are you within a sort of are you within the parameters that you might day, might one day, you know, right for each other? And if if you are, then they're the people and they're the conversations that you need to be double downing on and speaking to as as casually but as often as you can and, and making sure that those touch points aren't, you know, overly um, exertion on the, the LP that you're speaking to, but um, you remember
1: at the end of the day. So, so much great stuff to unpack there. Uh, a couple of things and a, a lot of credit goes, goes to my um, guests. I had uh, Raja from Churchill, which is a subsidiary of TIA Craft, one of the top investors in the entire space. And he has a texting relationship, similarly to Roland as well. They have a texting relationship with their top GPs. And the way that I would frame it is it truly is a marriage. Uh, so be careful who you're marrying uh, in both in a traditional marriage and also in GPLP world, because uh, unlike the typical U.S. marriage, which is seven years, the typical GPLP marriage is actually 14 years if you have the pre-seed and that's assuming just one vintage. So You really have to have this high level of alignment, whether it's in terms of values, in terms of morality, in terms of a view on the world. For example, we don't accept uh, LPs that, that are really concerned about paying us you know, carry on the upside. I return 100x and they're saying, why did you take 20, 25x? That's not an LP that I'm interested in, period. Uh, it's just not a way that I want to live in the world. No judgment to them. That's just not how I li- line. That's not how I think. That's not how I invest. I have, uh, I won't say a family office, I'm an ultra high net worth. And anytime I get a deal from somebody that I'm not very close to that has no economics, I almost immediately say no. If somebody sends me a deal through a reputable source and they have some carry, I'm like, okay, good. I could actually <laughs> dig in. There is no free lunch in this world, um, and you do you do get what you pay for. The other aspect of that is basically the cadence in in how you interact with somebody. As you said, there's a famous book: build your build, build your well before it's open. It's not a relationship if you only go to somebody when when you need them. You have to actually have skin the game. And the reality of it is there's only so many actual relationships you could have in your life. You have to look at it as a portfolio. If you are investing in me, James, and I'm investing in you, that is one of my you know, 20 to 30 portfolio of relationships. And I'm going to go all in there. There's no hack around that. There's no way to build a portfolio just in time. There's no way to come to somebody and say, write me a $20 million check. Just trust me. I'm a really good guy. I'm a really good hmm. girl. You have to build that over time with trust and a lot of times with smaller checks, followed by medium-sized checks, followed by larger checks, and there's no hack there. I would implore that people really look at it as a portfolio and as investment and treat their LPs the way that they want to be treated by them and and vice versa as well. Do you think the size of that free lunch has changed over the last 12
0: months? The the carry, the, the economics and all that sort of world in GP to GP,
1: has that changed much? I think that's a great question at TEDx. We've done multi-billion dollar deals in terms of our SPAC franchise and our public franchise. And one thing that you know, if you've done those kind of deals, and all credit goes to the rest of my team, I'm on the venture side. But I've been involved enough to understand one very important truism in the business world, and that is that power structures change very quickly. And how you treat somebody when you have the upper hand is how they're going to treat you when they have the upper hand. So yes, there might be small uh, fluctuations where suddenly VCs have the upper hand and now they're basically abusing or taking advantage of of their LPs. But as we saw in this last market cycle, it's turned around. So I think smart VCs are able to to understand that and are able to take a long term approach to it. And things have definitely gone out of hand. And the same thing happens on the uh, VC side with entrepreneurs it really is about building a long term relationship. Can you time a market uh, in a way that short term, it makes sense? Yes, but that's not something that I advise myself. So speaking about uh, market um, is now a good time right now, I think emerging managers are down by 75 to 80% in terms of investment this year is now really a good time to invest. Are we still early to be investing in the space? This is probably
0: something that I I speak I think about more more days than not at the moment. Um, it, it's definitely a it's a very weird time in, in venture because on one hand funds are finding it you know more challenging than they have done for the last decade to to raise a fund, and that's a reflection both across emerging and established managers and, and in the data of how many funds will actually end up getting funded this year. But then on the other hand, you've got these investor friendly. Very or, or increasingly investor-friendly um, times where funds are able to make decisions at a better or a, a slower rate. So you know, your hope there is that they will make better decisions. There is an increasing demand from founders and, and, and businesses for their capital as the supply reduces. So on a simple you know, economic perspective. You know, more, more, more demand, less supply, you should be getting a higher quality output from that. Um, so, I think for the people that are in the market right now, they're, they're probably licking their lips and, and they're pretty, probably, quietly pretty happy with, with, with where they are and where they're going to deploy over the next couple of years. Um, it, it's obviously tough for LPs who have probably blown their budgets in the last few years and, and over allocated because they didn't want to lose the access that they've got venture is very much an access class over an asset class. And so, you know, there's been a lot of LPs in the last few years who, who have been very scared to lose that access and and over and spent from future budgets. And so now they're kind of in a position where the budget kind of needs to catch up with with the spending. You've obviously got a that kind of liquidity um side of things as well, where people haven't necessarily got the liquidity that they've wanted out of some of their private market deals in the last few years. And so their private market position looks quite heavy on 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 paper. So I still believe that 23 to 25 are fantastic years to be um, investing, um, but you've got to be investing sensibly as a, as a GP, and you know you've got to obviously be able to have the capital available to, to allocate as, a, as an LP, which unfortunately
1: not everyone does right now for for various reasons. You mentioned deploying capital as an LP institutions, although they have gotten overweighted, are more disciplined than traditionally single family office, multifamily office. How do you advise your families uh, that, that you help invest? How do you advise them to, to deploy in venture? What's the best practice on a typical market cycle? The beauty and the, sometimes the frustration in the, in, the, in the family office
0: world is that ultimately, People do make the decision themselves, and and they can be impulsive. Um, that can be the, 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 their downfall, but it can also be the way that they win as well. Um, there's no, there's there's definitely no one size fits all in in this world, um, and there's no there's definitely no one size fits all when it comes to venture. I think in the venture world, if you're doing it yourself, you need to be under, investing in things that you understand, or certainly in sectors that you know you 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 have experience in if you're doing it on on behalf of someone else or you're doing it with others then you know that experience doesn't necessarily have to be there generally when if you're going into earlier stage companies or earlier stage positions i would always want to be doing that through a fund manager um there's such a there's such a qualitative a large volume of qualitative information you have to analyze there that unless you are really bugged into how a person works or a particular sector you are not going to do that right on your own. Um, you know, I, I I spoke to a, a company today who who uh, you know we've we've spoken I think three times now. They're at the seed stage. This is the third time they've pivoted their model. It's working now. They are you know they're getting paid customers. The growth that they're experiencing month to month for the last months is finally there. This is the third time they've pivoted, they've pivoted that model. Yeah, th- that happens so much in early stage venture that. I, I would always prefer trusting in people who live and breathe the early stage, know people, know their sector very, very well. And then when it comes to a bit more of a quantitative assessment where you have that metric, those metrics and that data, maybe perhaps at a, I would put it around maybe a late A, early Series B, that's where you can start be investing in the venture world a little bit more like a public market investor. So I think too many people in the sort of family office, multifamily office world in the last few years, just back to all the crazy fun ideas at early stages and um, you know, didn't necessarily do it with a thesis and um, have probably got a, a, a fair few crypto businesses and maybe
1: a few AI companies in, in their portfolio now that they're probably not too sure what to do with. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That the best analogy I've heard for fund managers is, James, me and you are going to be partners. Uh, you get 80, I get 20%. <laughs> Let's do business together. I'll, I'll do all the work. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in picking managers. If you look at venture capital, it's power law driven, uh, meaning it's basically binary. The best investments at Jason Calacanis on, he turned $25,000 into $100 million. 4,000x uh, return on Uber. Now that's exceptionally unlikely, but it does happen. And there's been many 1,000x uh, plus returns. Or the median return in venture is roughly 10%. 9 to 10% is what people have told me. So, if you just kind of do it uh, on the whims and you don't have alpha, you don't have access, as you mentioned, in venture, you're going to likely get a nine to 10%. If you do it systematically, if you do it intelligently, the mean in venture is 50%, roughly 45 to 50%. There's two de- different data sets that I've really looked at. So, you either get 10% and get 100%, or you pay, you get 45 to 50%, pay 20%, maybe pay 25% for, for premium manager and you pay on the profit. It's a kind of no-brainer to use fund managers to access venture specifically. We could argue on the public markets. We could argue on index funds and all all of that. But that is not the purpose of this podcast. Uh, The purpose of this podcast is the discussing things like co-invest. And I want to double down on that because I think you do have one of the most uh, interesting programs. So what is an ideal co-invest? You talk about, you know, you want to go with your managers. You talk about wanting to but what are some signals? Uh, are you ever using signals? How, how much of it is Sequoia is doing a Series A, they're investing for the first time, I'm interested, versus this is a really interesting strategy. Tell, tell me about that and t- tell me with as much detail and granularity as you can. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: the data doesn't lie. If you follow the big players, more often than not, you are going to perform well. I spoke to a business uh, last week, their business called Signal Rank a uh, very, very interesting company. They uh, do the pro rata rights for GPs who are unable to, to do them themselves. And um, they have a sort of economic structure that looks similar to a company doing a, or a fund's doing a co-invest together. They've put a very interesting data set together that shows a top 100 seed fund has a roughly about a 2% chance of hitting a unicorn. But if that business hits a series B, that jumps from 2% all the way to 24%. So there's no denying that If I'm a co-investor with one of my early stage funds and a Sequoia or an Axel comes in to do a Series B, I'm definitely going to be interested in that company because it's got a one in four roughly chance of becoming a unicorn, which is pretty, pretty good, like, thrilling strike rate. Now, that's one side of things. The other side of things is is doing things that you know you'd have a genuine interest in. You've met met, perhaps met the founders at one of the AGMs of your funds, and you've been able to strike up a pretty good relationship a little bit over time. I'd say the first piece that we just talked about there is kind of like short-term co-investing. Long-term co-investing is where you're able to kind of make a bit more of your own um, thesis on things. You're perhaps almost acting a little bit more like a growth stage VC yourself. And you'll be able to take things on a kind of more macro level of okay, understand the movements in that market, you know, taking your price and the number of customers that you could get, totally understand the, the market that you're going for. Do I see a decent exit out of this? Is it an attractive exit in say three to five years? If it's a series C, series D company, if the answer to those things are yes, then I'm gonna be getting pretty excited about it. I think that you shouldn't necessarily always trust others to follow your signals. Um,
1: but, you, but I think it's kind of a, a balance between the two. I'm going to put words in your mouth. Would you say that a Series A backed by Sequoia is more, is, is more risk-adjusted or, or a better deal than just investing in an emerging manager? Is the co-invest for a high-signal deal essentially more valuable than the manager investment itself uh, from a purely financial standpoint? So would I prefer to invest in so a Secureback Series A?
0: Let's just say like a 3 million ticket or would I rather put 3 million into like a $50 million
1: series, uh, yes. emerging manager? Or 300,000 to 10 emerging managers just to... Mm, oh, that's for right. That's very different. That's right. <laughs> I, I
0: would rather do the 300K into 10 for sure. If it was one on one, I think I'd still rather the manager. Um, The the Sequoia deal, yes, it's very attractive. It's a a one in four chance, but um, the the big fund returners are going to be coming from backing those emerging managers who are doing sort of pre-seed, seed seed, um, seed investments. So if if I'm getting sort of 40 or 50
1: underlying companies for my money there, I think I'd rather take my chances on that. You mentioned 24%. I haven't heard that. Uh, I've interviewed over 50 people, recorded and non-recorded. I've never heard uh, anyone mentioned the twenty four percent?
0: Yeah, so this this comes from this company, Signal Rank. It's their own personal data, and they have put a sort of algorithm together to calculate how the um, likelihood of a company reaching unicorn is changed between seed and Series A when being backed by a top one hundred funds. So the data that they've got there says it jumps from two percent seed, to roughly one in fifty companies, all the way up to, yeah. to to a surprising one in four. And so their whole piece there is that. If you, as a, a G, I don't want to be bugging them too much, but we're not investors or yeah. um, haven't have um, haven't done anything not with yet. them yet. But not yet. No, they are. You know, so this is a kind of company that we need to be very aware of and to to take seriously because co investing is great, and you can you can increase your returns, you can reduce your economics, but it's a very manual process. No matter how much data you collect and how well those conversations go, it's still you know. A task to do every time, and so there is going to be technologies to develop and improve that process. And you know this potentially could be one of those businesses. But I think if you, if you, as a them aside, just in the in the in the space more generally, if you're a pre-seed to seed fund, and you're not able to take your prorata rights, then you're not actually double downing on the performance that is right in front of you, and
1: and will you know set you up for the next one two vintages that you're you're, you're planning to raise. You mentioned annual annual general meetings, AGMs. We haven't yet discussed that. You're the first guest to bring it up. And and I'm curious, you've been to many of them. I only know of one a year. Uh, What are the best practices at AGMs? What are your favorite AGMs to go to? And what are the best practices? I'm going to start with my least favorite and the
0: bad practices, because I think that it's much easier to stand out as a bad one as opposed to a, to a good one. So what, what's the point of an AGM? The point of an AGM is to bring in your LPs, maybe some of your prospective LPs as well, to show off what an amazing fund you are and how well, what a good year you've had. They are not there for you to put out 20 of your 25 portfolio companies and have them present sort of 10, 15-minute pitches each, and sit there sort of boardless for sort of three to four hours in an afternoon. That is definitely not the point of, a, of an AGM. And, and I have seen that happen in in, in practice. Good, at a good AGM has sufficient time for the guests to converse with each other. Because if you think about the people you're putting into a room, it's a very, very powerful room. And they're probably very interested in speaking to each other. So you want to have some guidance and some structure to the day. But the ones that I've seen actually be really, really interested and I've taken away some very valuable connections, are ones where they give you time to be able to meet other people, mingle with, with with each other, because they're basically like a conference where there's a bit more of a sort of first connection feel to it in a sort of smaller group of environment where you know everyone in the room is is a, is a pretty, um, has an interesting background or represents someone interesting or is interesting themselves. So the whole a good AGM should feel like a small, refined conference, in my opinion.
1: I remember nine years ago, I, I had a Warriors box seat. I invited Alfred Lynn, uh, who was kind enough to be to be a friend and acquaintance, and uh, he basically said, "Thank you, but no, thank you." And I was shocked by that. And I later realized that individuals, the most important people in the world, are more focused on who they're around, they're, when they're at. Uh, you know they have unlimited access to things like warriors box seats to warriors four seats. What they really want is that connection with other like minded very smart uh, individuals in this case Lps. What are you looking to get from from talking to Lps like w- what is the best relationship that you have with Lps? How does that look like? I
0: think something that I've be- begin to really value in the last couple of years is uh, I have a group of Lps um some, more emerging um, LPs in terms of their age demographic. They are sort of maybe a next generation at an institution or next, or they have just recently become partner at a sort of more of a, a family office setup. And there's 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 a lot of, there's a lot of power that can happen in, in, in sharing. And I do see more sharing happening in, in that sort of culture than I than I thought would happen when I first joined the sort of LP side. People are very happy to talk about funds, to share in cool notes, to jump on calls to, with you and to discuss funds. Probably no different to what VCs do when they're looking at founders and, and, and talking amongst themselves about the kind of deals that they're doing. LPs are doing it as well. And someone like myself with, Still lots of experience for myself to learn in, in, in the future. That that's invaluable in learning from people who have invested in more funds than me or have invested in different areas to me is to is to learn from, from each other. So I think that best practice piece is, is is on a sort of collaboration front. And I'm seeing that from a group of LPs, particularly in the in the European scene, of a sort of similar age demographic, that they're very happy to share in in the work that we do. I guess the one thing that's quite that I was I've been thinking about recently is. Unless it's like an absolute high-flying fund, there's probably always opportunity for me and a friend who's an LP to go into the same fund. That 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 relationship obviously changes between VCs because usually the round is pretty finite in size, and so that competition to get into those rounds is um, you know obviously increased. So it's a bit of a different thing. I do think there's more room for
1: LPs to be collaborative than uh, um, perhaps VCs. I've been thinking about the zero-sum, non-zero-sum nature of venture capital as an industry. I interviewed Jason Calacanis, and he astutely said that the pre seed is non-zero-sum and the Series A, Series B is zero-sum and sharp elbows. It goes back to what you were saying, which at some point goes from a qualitative to a quantitative game. I think you see the same thing in the LP ecosystem, where you see the emerging manager space as non-zero-sum. And then once you have access to Founders Fund, Sequoia, Andreessen, and Lightspeed, name your top tier fund, you're going to be less likely to introduce them to other LPs because you want that allocation to yourself. What do you think about that thesis? Do you think there's any truth to that?
0: I think that yeah. frustratingly spots on. Uh, I was waiting <laughs> for a place I could, I, I could disagree. Look, um, the, the top funds are always going to be taken by the same LPs. It's probably why some of the LPs have over Spent on their budgets in the last couple of years because they didn't want to lose their access into these top funds, and I don't think anyone's going to deny that those funds aren't, uh, you know, haven't been high performing and have a good chance of of performing again because of the brands that they've been able to to create. You know, VC is all about brand at the end of the day. If you're able to create a great brand, then entrepreneurs are going to be able to find you, hear about you, and want to want to work with you. And um, that obviously is, is, is challenging to create the emerging side. You have to prove to entrepreneurs why they should be working with you and partnering with you. Um, now the caveat to that is, is if you've got a manager who's trying to prove why you should work with them on the entrepreneur side and the LP side, are they going to be, you know, harder working, more motivated, more enthusiastic about their work than someone who's been doing it for 20, 25 years? I don't know that that's again, a qualitative answer, but. You know, on a, on a person-to-person level, I look at those people and I, you can see it in their eyes how much they want it and how much they're determined to, to, to make it work. So I think there's definitely a truth about um, there being more opportunity to collaborative, to share ideas and perhaps end up both investing in a sort of emerging fund. Um, we, we, we want to be playing in that emerging fund area ourselves. So our, our perfect sort of entry point is probably a fund two, maybe a fund three, going up to sort of fund five. We don't want funds to kind of be going too much larger, and often you see sort of funds do progress in that sort of fund size post that vintage. I think if we went into a Sequoia or a, um, a, 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 an equivalent fund, we would just be kind of an, uh, a a row on a spreadsheet on a piece of paper, right? We we would be a nobody, and that's because we're not putting a hundred million dollar check in, and and you know, the chances of us getting a a a good co-investment program together with a fund like that is going to be very, very slim
1: because we're 0.1% of the fund instead of five or six. I had a a very successful private equity fund manager, not venture capitalist. He showed me they have an acknowledgement letter. Anybody that invests less than $10 million needs to acknowledge that they're not going to get access to the AGM. They're not going to get special access to management. I think, by the way, I'm totally in favor. Uh, I will sign every acknowledgement letter from every top fund. Just let me just put it out there. (laughs) I love the idea. I thought it was interesting. But it it goes, it goes to your point, which is you have to have the self awareness to know where you are valuable and where you are not. A lot of people, uh, same thing when when I started in the space, I was so excited to talk to Harvard Management Company and Yale and of course, uh, you know, historic and, and, and prolific in terms of David Swenson and everything. But Does Yale, does Harvard Management really want to build a two-sided relationship with an emerging manager? Maybe, maybe they have different pockets, different individuals. But I want to be uh, alongside people that are aligned with my vision and with my mission and where I can not only take value, I could also provide value. And I think that's the only way to have a sustainable relationship. Yeah, uh, yeah, to be honest, I I do think VC is
0: in a bit of a sort of 2.0 situation right now. I do think there's going to be a bit of a reset coming through where VC will start seeing itself in sort of two buckets. One being those sort of much larger funds, uh, AUM driven, and they're going to be driven by you know the big LPs in this world who so want to be f- putting in $50, $100 million checks. There's still going to be a very much a place for those sort of funds in the world. I think where we'll see them changing in their sort of... Um, uh, Ideas in the kind of companies that they're investing in, is, I think those are going to gravitate much more towards sort of an early sort of style over equity fund where they are going to be thinking about minimizing the risk of losing that money as opposed to generating huge returns. So, what did that look like in practice? It might be going into you know, slower growing businesses, more profitable companies, which has been the sort of current trend of VCs telling their portfolio companies to try and become as a sort of persona. What that will leave is sort of a true venture layer underneath. Smaller, specialized funds who are taking bets on sectors that are genuinely going to change the world for the next generation. You know, whether that is the things in space, whether that's in the next sort of layer of energy that we're using, the next layer of computing power that we're using. I think that it's time for VC to kind of split into two, a bit of a
1: reset and, and, and see those sort of two buckets. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think one of the easy way to look at VC is if you have a mega fund that's investing at a 30 million dollars pre technology risk and you have another one that's investing at a 10 million dollars pre technology risk on average the one that's investing at 10 million dollars is just going to return higher. It's just a math. Once you're investing on a qualitative basis versus quantitative basis You're going to have significantly higher returns if you're investing on a qualitative basis at a lower valuation. It's not one to one. Obviously, when you have more cash on the balance sheet, you have more runway, and sometimes they are a little bit um, more progressed. But all things being equal, there's a huge advantage for emerging managers. So, Harry Stebbings was
0: talking about this on one of his podcasts uh, a week or so ago, and he was saying, you know, there's still seed rounds being done on 5 on 25, and it's like, have people not learned the lesson from? uh you know 2021 these seed funds okay 25 million dollar pre money valuation doesn't look that different from say a 12 million um 12 million dollar valuation but yeah that's that's a 2x difference that could genuinely be the difference between your fund being the mean versus the medium, right so i think these people need to kind of be pretty careful about where they are getting involved from an entry point and and harry was sort of reinforcing that last week that there's still a lot of players kind of not really
1: thinking about their, their entry prices in the, in the market. Absolutely. And ha- Harry Stebbings, the GOAT in VC podcasting, uh, and obviously a fellow Brit, you mentioned, you mentioned the 2x difference, the 2x difference, just to give you some numbers, what is a mediocre fund? 1.5x DPI. What is a good, great fund? 3x DPI. So a 2x multiple is uh, monumental in terms of uh, differentiating between a mediocre and a t- top performing fund. Me and Eric have been pounding the pavement in terms of in the space. We've had Beezer Clarkson, Michael Kim, Chris Duvas, Apurva Mehta, David Clark, and and everybody else. I don't want to. I, I have to almost list every single <laughs> single guest, uh, not to offend anyone, but we we've really went out there and tried to get the very top LPs. Who else should we Who else should we be interviewing? Even people that have never been on a podcast, you know, leave that to me and Eric to to get them on. Who else should we be interviewing? I think that you should
0: be trying to introduce different types of LPs. So you've done very well with the sort of endowment institutional-like model. It would be great to see some more people who invest on a personal level who are that sort of agent and principal almost together. You know, perhaps uh, people who have been very, very successful in their entrepreneurial world or on the, on the family office front. There's some more that you can do in the in the European space as well. There's been some big funder funds that have sort of been raised recently, like Iceland Capital. Um, there's there's other there's other LPs out there um in in the in the the European space that um are actually being pretty attractive right now. There's a lot of US LPs who want to come over to Europe and and sort of um allocate over there a lot of but US funds are sort of opening London offices because they're looking at, Euro- at Europe Europe going, okay, well, you know, the quality of talent is 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 equal here, um, but the prices of the businesses are are cheaper. Yes, we have to work out the exit strategies for them. It's definitely not as good here in in the in Europe as it is in the US. Um, but companies can go over or cross borders so much nowadays that we're seeing more and more people perk up interest in Europe. So don't,
1: don't disregard your, but see some more, uh, some LPs on that side. We, we definitely don't. Two of my favorite guests have been David Clark and Steve Chasen. Steve Chasen at Rothschild, David Clark at VanCap, amazing guests and also amazing human beings. Uh, and, and I would put you in that group as well, although obviously you're younger, but you're, you're on your way, uh, to the same, same profile. Um, it, it's been a pleasure. Um, uh, you know, we went, uh, we went off topic, uh, almost the entire interview and that's because you have such a wealth of knowledge. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think diligencing 3000 companies a year for seven years, ultimately experiences a numbers game. Um, And of course at Dara5, you're doing some really interesting things. You're backing some of my favorite managers. And I think you're approaching it from truly a relational standpoint, which I do think is rare. I really appreciate you jumping on the podcast. What would you like our listeners to know about you or Dara5 or anything else you'd like to highlight? Anything else I'd like to highlight? Don't be scared of the emerging managers because
0: every emerging man, every experienced manager was an emerging manager at one point in time. You know, A16 was an a, a emerging manager in the early 2000s. People have to start somewhere, um, listen to ideas. Um, it's a people's, people's game at the end of the day. If you take 10 calls, five of them might be terrible and a waste of time, but
1: one or two of those 10 is going to be golden. Just to add a little bit on that, one is if you want access to the next Sequoia, you have to invest in the emerging manager space, or you could be worth $100 billion. That's true. Uh, or be a pay? foundation. There's two paths. To be fair, there are two paths. That's uh, true. But if you really want access to the emerging managers, you have to be in early. There is no free lunch when it comes to getting into top, top venture firms. There's anywhere from two to 5,000 emerging managers today. Uh, the good part about that is there's a lot of empirical uh, evidence of outperformance. We're not talking about, hey, there's 10 funds, they're doing really good, look at them. Uh, there's a lot of data driven, um, I- empirical results from how emerging managers do outperform established managers. Some of those data sets come from PitchBook, Cambridge Associates, uh, as well as, of course, our friends at Allborn Partners. So there's a lot of data that empirically prove what you're saying. So uh, we, we want to continue to highlight emerging managers during a difficult market cycle. Thank you, James. Look forward to uh, either meeting up in London or New York. You have an open invite, uh, and really appreciate you letting me go on and, and probe, probe your strategy for. Thanks, David. Yeah, it's been absolutely awesome to be on, and uh, looking forward to doing it in person next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Eric and I have a special RFP to the community. Please intro us to any family offices, endowments, or foundations that are currently investing into emerging managers all introductions which result in a podcast will receive a $500 Amazon gift card, as well as a special shout out on the episode. Not to mention, you'll forever hold a special place in the heart of the LP introduced. Please introduce the LP to David at 10xcapital10xcapital.com. And do not worry about having us double opt in. We thank you for your support.